0: I am uh, excited about, as I'm always, kind of like, like, I'm always excited to do this, but I'm excited about today's message for several reasons. One is we wrap up our series in the book of James. If you've been walking with us for any period of time, you know, we started um, uh, some uh, quite a few weeks ago, and this is gonna be the final message in that series. And um, one of the things that I love about Uh, what the Lord is doing in my life through preparation for this is uh, just really and just in part of my conversation in prep was recognizing the difference between agreeing with the scriptures and being gripped by them. Uh, I don't know of many Bible-believing folk or folk that have been around the church for a long period of time who aren't prepared at some level to to agree with what the Bible says, even if it's not their reality. But but I just found it particularly uh, compelling uh, as I've been preparing here over the last few couple of weeks and just, Lord, I don't want to just agree with your word. I don't want to just concede or check a box like it's true on a survey. I want to be gripped by this. I want this to be not a temporary reality, not a hopeful reality, like I want this to be a driving force behind the way that I live. And so uh, today's stretch of text, uh, as I mentioned in some of my earlier comments, uh, specifically focuses on uh, prayer. And so we're gonna get in there, but as we're doing that, I wanna hand something out, just a little bit of a prop. Travis, can you take this for me? All right, good. Uh, would you just kind of circulate that? You guys can just kind of hand that around to one another as I'm preaching. Feel free to let it go on all sides. Um, no one in, uh, you know, but, you know, look at it, you know, hold on to it, make sure each person touches it. Don't rush it, don't rush it, don't rush it, Aaron's mom. You know, you can hold on to it a little bit longer, look at it. You know, it's, kind of, it's coming all the way around. We're not even going to get to that until like five or six points in. But just kind of appreciate uh, that item that's coming around because it'll have uh, some sway in today's message. Let's talk to our Lord, shall we? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning, giving ourselves over to you. You already, Lord God, did the work at the cross and making us yours and coming to abide in us. And Lord God, um, we just ask that as you have given us your word captured in scripture and and Lord God, just kind of, uh, Lord God, you're here in the room as you promised you would be wherever two or three are, are gathering your name. We pray, oh God, that we would experience your presence in really opening us up and being gripped by the scriptures and not just being in agreement, Lord God, with the preached word. I pray, oh God, that both the teacher, Lord God, and the hearers would be equally brought to a place of awe at your overwhelming goodness, oh God, and what it is that you desire to do in our lives. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. I don't know how many of you know it. Uh, how many you, I mean, some of you may know. Uh, she doesn't go to church here, but you know that I, I have uh, a sister. Yeah, yeah, i mean, going to be just show of hands. You know that I have a sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of you have met her. Some of you know her. Um, and so uh, my sister and I are about six years apart. And when you're adults, right, 45 and 51, that really doesn't have a lot of significance. But when you're teenagers, it does. It has a lot, right? And so uh, one of the interesting things that would happen in our household growing up, as you can imagine, uh, and I'm the younger of the two, and uh, one of the things you can imagine, uh, uh, just kind of as, as you have two uh, uh, siblings, uh, there were certain assignments and places in life where the parents strategically made sure that the two stayed together, right? Um, so, you know, one of which would have been like if I, you know, as the younger brother, maybe if I was, you know, five or six or maybe seven years old, if I was going somewhere and, you know, felt fully independent, like I could handle it on my own, uh, the parents might send the older sister, right, that 12, 13, year old uh, or 14 year old sister to make sure that, uh, that, that, you know, little Rod didn't get out of hand or that he was safe or that he's just, his independence didn't get him in trouble. Right. But then it also worked both ways. There have been times when maybe my sister may have gone on a date or something and my parents just wanted a certain level of quality control uh, on the date. And so, you know, here it is, you're out here, 16, 17 years old and right there in the back seat, you know, at the drive-in movie theater is your brother, <laughs> you know, and not just any little brother. Right? It's probably one of the most curious, loud, and talkative, uh, uh, you know, uh, children in North America. Um, it's me, and. Um you know, so what was interesting about that, about that life is, uh, I think to, to, to both of us as children, it seems somewhat, you know, uncomfortable. You know, I didn't want to be bossed and managed and, and just tethered to my sister when I wanted to go do things as a, as a kid, and, and I'm absolutely certain that she didn't want me, you know, accompanying her on her dates uh, uh, or anything like that. But what I found to be particularly strategic from the perspective of the parents is something that I can also see and identify with in the heart of the father. And that is, hey, if you wanted to, if you wanted to, to go out with Pam, you was going to have to hang out with Rod. And if you wanted to play with Rod, you were going to have to contend with Pam because they were going to be in proximity. And when I look at the scriptures and I think about today's message, I also think about that similar dynamic when it comes to this conversation of both faith and prayer. You see, if you're the kind of person that wants to entertain a robust and healthy conversation with prayer, you want to take prayer out on a date it's impossible to do so without faith. Or if you wanted to hang out with faith, I mean, you can't have much faith or much fun with faith and not have to deal eventually with prayer. I mean, the two of them are connected like siblings. And, and, and I would go so far as to say that faith and prayer are not just connected like siblings in that very six-year difference context like I mentioned, but I believe that prayer and faith are so deeply connected that they would be more than just like best friends or close friends, but I mean, they would be like Siamese twins, as I would say. In other words, Siamese twins have the kind of sibling connection that if you sought to disconnect them, you would do damage to both or definitely one. And that's the kind of connectivity that I believe that the Lord wants faith and prayer to have in our lives that, that they would be closer they wouldn't just be close religious friends in our lives they wouldn't just be things that we handle and deal with independently maybe we talk about them individually when it comes to times of teaching and, uh, and stuff like that but really and truly in the life of the believer I cannot imagine a person who says that they love and trust God and they they want to follow him with all their heart and they have faith in him and that lifestyle doesn't include just this is equally prayer. And I would find it almost ridiculous, no almost, absolutely ridiculous to think about someone who says that I have a robust life of prayer and it does not include a life of faith. So can you see how it is that, that, that a life of real faith and prayer are more than just, just just having them as close friends, but they're virtually Siamese twins, that one without the other are virtually dead, damaged, and not functional. And so that's what we want to talk about today when we look um, at our text. We're going to be looking at uh, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. I want to read the entirety of that text to you as we move toward our first point, because there's certain things that I want you to notice, and I'm going to read with a certain level of emphasis and see if you can pick up on them. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let them sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous uh, person has great power as it is working. Elijah, a man with the nature, just like like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three days and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I mean, you only have seven verses, and I think the word prayer shows up like six times. Like it is just impossible to get away from, from prayer in James's conversation here. And, and one of the things that I, that I immediately noticed as I talked about moving from agreement to being gripped by the text is I immediately begin to notice that real faith has a reflex of prayer that if I have real faith, that real faith has a reflex of prayer. Now, do we know what a reflex is? Do we know what a reflex is? Right? So you've got reflexes that come in two major categories. You've got voluntary and you've got involuntary. Now, an example of a voluntary reflex would be if you and I were to stand up here in the front of the uh, uh, sanctuary and play catch, and you threw the ball to me, and my eye recognizes that it's coming, and it sends a signal to my brain that says, you better raise your hands and get that before it hits you in the face. That's a voluntary reflex right? That's a voluntary reflex, that there's a communication and a conversation going on in the brain that we need to take action based on what's happening. Well, not only that, but there are also involuntary reflexes, and one of the coolest of which are the involuntary reflexes that completely bypass the brain. If you didn't know this, if you put your hand on a hot stove, there is a signal, there's a nerve impulse that goes over the, the neural highways, goes to the spine, and immediately pulls something back that says, get your hand off of that, without the brain having to formalize thought. In the believer's life, we want prayer to become a reflex, and real faith produces a prayerful reflex. As a matter of fact, one of the great measuring rods that I have grown to use in my own life is how often do I pray without the adventure of the formal clasping of hands, removing of hat, bowing of head, getting on a knee, finding a cozy place, setting up some good music, making sure there's no distractions, and then going before God, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is a voluntary reflex of prayer. That's good. But if I really want to measure how deeply I'm trusting God and what's going on in my life, I'm looking for the involuntary reflex. How often can I move to prayer and bypass the brain and just like, this is a moment of prayer and I don't need anything to prompt me to say, you should probably be praying about this. Why don't we set some time aside at home and lift that up? I hope what you're experiencing, even here in our congregation, that as many of you or some of you have come to us and said, would you pray for me about that? Before you get a chance to turn around and be like, yeah, let's do it now. Because we want to develop a reflex of prayer. We want to develop a lifestyle where we trust God in a way that, 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 that prayer is not something that we have to try to do, but we, our hearts are trained as a reflex to do it. We want to be a people of prayer. And we want to be a people of prayer is not some unique signature that we're trying to design and develop within within gospel hope. The Bible shows that there's a reflex of prayer. Look at the words of James. Or consider the words of James that we just read together. Whether it was someone who was suffering, whether someone who was celebrating, whether it was someone who was sick, whether it was Elijah who was encountering insurmountable obstacles, whether it was somebody who was caught in sin, there was always a reason to turn toward God and open one's mouth in prayer. James shows us that people who have real faith have a reflex of prayer. Consider, if you will, that the larger, if, if you—if this is your first Sunday here or your fifth Sunday and you didn't catch all the series, you'll know that the entire series, regardless of what we've talked about, the entire series has been real faith. And real faith manifests itself with a reflex of prayer. Let's continue. I want you also to consider not only the words of James, the words of James as he, as he talked about uh, uh, suffering, celebration, sickness, sin, insurmountable obstacles, and even the brother or sister who may have from the truth and the need to be, uh, uh, to be compelled to go and get them. But also consider, you know, throughout these passages that James has been a huge fan of Jesus, has he not? So much of Jesus's or James's ministry has been direct echoes, reflections, or even a cut and paste from the words of Jesus's sermon on the mount. And so there are other circumstances, even here, where we see the Lord Jesus Christ, prior to him going into ministry, he prayed. Prior to picking disciples, he prayed. On the night prior to his crucifixion, he prayed. He was always in a lifestyle of constant prayer. Now, you might be saying, well, of course, that's Jesus. But pause, slow down for just a second. You're talking about Jesus. You're talking about God in the flesh. You're talking about the very son of God, the one who, according to to, to John chapter 17, knew him in eternal fellowship before the worlds were. And he thinks prayer is necessary? Before making basic decisions like picking who's going to be on your team? Before going into ministry? After and before engaging with crowds of people? Right? I mean, passing out bread and multiplying fish. Jesus found it necessary to have as a regular, ongoing duration of prayer. The Bible tells us that Jesus would pray all night. Jesus, why is he praying that hard? Doesn't he already have the upper hand? Isn't the deck already stacked? Doesn't he already have deity in his back pocket? Why would Jesus find it necessary to pray? You know why? Because if you listen to him long enough, he would always say, I work while the Father is working. Unless my Father says it, I don't say it. Unless my Father does it, I don't do it. So prayer is more than just about pushing through my petition or my request. Prayer is a critical part of also staying connected to the Father. And Jesus thought it was necessary. James thought it was necessary. And so did Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, put it this way. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. But Paul says to pray without ceasing. So here it is, Jesus himself and two major biblical personalities are telling us that a constant lifestyle of prayer is crucial to the life of the body and for folk that say that they have faith. I would put it this way very simply, we've said a lot, but I'd say it this way, very simply, that if we trust God deeply, we'll talk to him frequently. If we trust God deeply, we'll talk to him frequently. Have you ever felt that little sense of guilt in your stomach or that pause in your speech when you're talking to somebody else and some, another person comes up and you go, oh yeah, I know such and such, that's my friend, and blah, 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 you talk about how close you guys are, and then some kind of way the conversation works its back back around, when was the last time you talked to them? And you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it was recently, because I just told everybody we were really good friends, right? But if you trust deeply in God, if you say that you're connected, you're going to talk frequently. It just, it is what it is. I mean, your prayer life ought to be like, uh, ought to be observable like the life of a teenager that every time you pass by that room, the light is on or you hear them in there talking to somebody. And it's like, who are you on the phone with? Go to bed. Our prayer lives ought to be, have that kind of frequency. Who are you talking to now? And then the parent heart always sing because it's the same name over and over again. Right? That's what my prayer life should look like. The incessance of teenagers to stay connected to their favorites. My adult prayer life ought to be like that. Dad, what you end up doing? You playing video games? You watching TV? You working on your sermon? Brian, If we trust him deeply, we'll talk to him frequently. Let's look again more deeply at verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 in our passage. It says, If anyone among you is sick, is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is an interesting passage, is it not? Another thing that I believe really bleeds forward into Texas, not only is real faith, does real faith have a reflex of prayer, but real faith refuses to separate the practical from the supernatural. Real faith refuses to separate the supernatural from the practical. I just said the same thing. Don't get tricked on it. But, but, But here's the deal. What do I mean by that? When you do a research on this whole process this practice of calling for the elders and someone being anointed with oil and then that person being healed, uh, if, if, you, if you just kind of research it throughout the text, the, 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 the utilization of oil was not magical. In many cases, it was medicinal. But, 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 but here's where the church finds itself in some tricky waters. The church can almost be like the treacherous landscape of politics. You got people on opposite ends of the aisle in terms of their beliefs, in terms of who should be voted for. But then you got people who feel the need to live on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of whether or not prayer is practical or supernatural. And, 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 a, and a deep life of prayer recognizes, and it refuses to separate the practical from the supernatural. God did not put us in a position where you must drive a great wedge between the practical and the supernatural. So let's just say that the person mentioned in the passage was healed supernaturally by God. Or, or did we want to give credit to the oil? I mean, what is this about? The whole Christian life is built on appreciating the beautiful romance between the practical and the supernatural. The two should have never been separated in our hearts and minds. Let me explain. Do you understand that you and I were actually saved by appreciating the romance between the practical and the supernatural? We are told to believe that Jesus Christ just practically died. In a very, in a very, in a very, just, just he died. He died, a real death. Not a, not a, not a, not a, not some kind of ghost-like death, as a Jehovah's Witness would say, but he died. His heart stopped beating. He died. Flatline. Jesus practically died. And the Bible says, believe that. But then the Bible says that if your heart will believe that Jesus died in a very practical way, but that he was supernaturally raised. If you'll trust that fact, you'll be saved. The Bible goes further. It says that if if you're saved in a very supernatural way, understand this, that the Holy Spirit supernaturally comes, lives in your heart and makes his home. The Holy Ghost comes and lives inside of me. That's a very supernatural work. But then the Bible says on the premise of that supernatural residency of the Holy Spirit that you ought to practically live holy. Live holy. You are not your own. Guess what? Your body is God's house. That's a supernatural reality that demands a practical working out. But then the Bible goes further. It says that if you really are his, then you'll do his work, which means you and I will go out in very practical ways. We will articulate the gospel, right? No one has ever been argued into the kingdom. No one has ever gotten saved because one of us has won the argument, or or, 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 or we, we can't lawyer or attorney someone into the kingdom. We have practically shared the basic words of the gospel, and what happens? God takes the practical words, and on his agenda and on his timing, supernaturally oversees that conversation and takes those words, and he begins to produce faith and conviction and regeneration and conformity of heart. God does the work. We just practically share the gospel, but he supernaturally comes in and does work. Our whole life is predicated on an appreciation of how the supernatural and the practical work together. And for any one of us that tries to separate them, regardless of your theological background, we are doing ourselves a great disservice. Where is the pen that I sent around? Where is the pen? He had, it made it all the way around. If you had a chance to look at that, how many people have seen um, uh, Latandra? You know my second, my other daughter. Yeah, Doria knows. That's my. That's my. Other, but I have another daughter. It's my pickup. The Tundra, I told you the Toyota Tundra. Uh, every once in a while, you see it. It's you know four-inch lift. It's got the big tires. Um, it's, it's, uh, did we drive it today? We didn't drive it. It's, she's sitting got home. She just the surgery. Uh, she just got a new starter. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, the uh, plays no games, um, and she can pull a lot of stuff. We got a trailer in the backyard. But 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 the, but but here's the deal: in order for her to pull stuff, you need that. We got a trailer hitch and all that kind of stuff, but there is this one point where all of Latandra's horsepower and anything that I want to pull, 2,000 pounds, 3,000 pounds, 4,000 pounds, whatever it is, all of that has to come together. And once they connect, there's something called a linchpin that has to go in that trailer hitch with the two of them. And if that pin comes out, all of her horsepower is wasted and none of the stuff that I need to pull. But what I'm saying is prayer is the linchpin of the faith. And if we are not regularly relying on that pin, if we're not doing that, all the horsepower of God and the supernatural horsepower... And we're just left with the weight. I mean, if you, if you ever see me trying to pull and push this trailer out of the backyard, it is crazy. But hey, I'm moving it, but I'm moving it in my own strength. But if I want to be connected to where the power is, I have to use that pin. And so, in the believer's life, we ought to know that, again, prayer is the linchpin between the practical and the supernatural. Let's continue looking at our text. Verses 15 and 16 have something else to share. It says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power. As it is working. Here's what I believe that James would have us to know, and the Holy Spirit through him in particular, and more importantly, is that real faith recognizes the role of prayer in both confession and community. That's a mouthful, let's say it slower. Real faith recognizes the role of prayer in confession and in community. I told you that James was a huge fan of Jesus. And there are many moments that James references that are really just him looking back at something that he witnessed, heard, or experienced while with the Lord Jesus Christ. This story of someone, this unique this unique collision of confession and healing and prayer and the forgiveness of sins. We ourselves do not forgive sins. We know that obviously this is the work of the Lord, right? We can forgive one another horizontally, but we can't expunge anyone's sins. It's only Jesus. When I look at the, the, the landscape of this text in this passage, I'm reminded of a story that took place in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Does anybody, even if you don't know the scriptural address, we're going to put it on the screen, but in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, do you remember the time where Jesus came into Capernaum, went into a house, and was preaching. It was a packed house. It was so packed inside and outside that people from the crowd could not get into where Jesus was. The Bible says that there were four people who had a a paralytic, a man who was paralyzed, on a stretcher. That they brought him up to the house where Jesus was, and when they saw that they couldn't get close to the Christ because of the crowd, that they then climbed up and took pieces off of the roof, and they lowered Jesus down. And do you remember Jesus' first words? The Bible says, and Jesus saw their faith, plural. He saw their faith. The people who lord him now, they saw their faith, plural. Jesus saw their faith and said, son, thy sins are forgiven. What a party pooper for the dude on the stretcher, right? Maybe. But then they said that there were scribes in the audience who started to murmur and talk amongst one another and says, who can? why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins except for God himself? Jesus overhears the conversation at our heart and says, well, why do you murmur? Here's the deal. What would be easier? Would it be easier for me to say, take up thy bed and walk, or thy sins are forgiven? But so that you may know that the Son of God or the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on earth. Son, take up thy bed and walk. And he got off his stretcher and walked out in the midst of them. Didn't even stay for the rest of the message. Obviously, he's not a member. He didn't participate in but break down, nor did he wait for the members' meeting. But I'm bump, right? But my man walked out. But what I want you to notice here is I want you to see that scenario, because James obviously has this in mind when we talk about the person who was both raised up and forgiven their sins. I want you to see something when it comes to the role that that prayer must play within confession and community. Here it is. The man on the stretcher, ultimately, his ultimate need was for Christ, but his immediate need was for community. He couldn't get to where Jesus was unless there were four people just like him who found compassion and said, look at his plight and decided to bring him to where Jesus was. His ultimate need was for Jesus but his immediate need was for community. Those who were rallied around him, who saw his plight, who perhaps understood the principles of James that if there is one among you that is suffering, that somebody that's sick, let's get him to the church. Let's get him to the word. Let's get him to the elders. But so he immediately he ultimately needed Jesus, but he immediately needed the thrust of community and those around him who would help him. But not only that, not only does he need the thrust of community to help bear his burden as he was paralyzed, but his immediate need and his additional need was for intercession and confession. We don't see in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, any intercession and confession. But the whole idea of intercession, if we had to have a living word picture, a living behavioral exercise, of what intercession by way of prayer looks like. When I'm pulling somebody else's weight, it's those four guys bringing that guy to to get his needs met. It's me seeing the need in somebody else's life and taking ownership for that weight, bearing the burdens of one another and saying, we need to get him to God like this was our problem too. That's what intercession is. But then note that once they got him to Jesus— Jesus recognized, because his ultimate need is for Christ, Jesus recognized that healing wasn't the only thing that was needed, that also forgiveness. You see, God is in the business of making people whole. And so when we do community together, I want to give us a word of caution. Community is not allowing people to dump on us and we never compelled them to seek Christ with us. Community is not just developing a holy huddle that allows people who are not whole to feel good about their place of brokenness. In the meantime, real community is constantly working, yes, to bear the burden, but to bring them closer to Christ. I want us to be very careful and clear as we are a church that loves and enjoys deep, rich community. It's built into the infrastructure of our fellowship, but community is not rallying around one another's mess. It is bearing one another's burden so we can get each other to the Messiah. And if our sense of community is not one that is constantly either on our knees or either on our feet, pulling that person to say, how can we get them to Christ. We're not doing community. What we're setting them up is not for intercession, but for a gossip session. Even if it's not negative, we're just having something nice to talk about. But real prayer, a life of deep faith and prayer, recognizes the role of prayer and confession in community. How do we do community well? Is my sense of community really leading to confession? Is it really leading to the biblical form of confession, which is not just telling on myself, but it's full-blown agreement with God? You've heard me say the Greek word a million times from this platform, and I'll say it again, homo legeu, Logo to say, homo to say the same thing. Confession, that's how I get saved. I say the same thing about Jesus that the Father says. Confession isn't just telling on myself. It is admitting of what my sin is and how it is standing in the way of being whole. That's what confession is. It isn't just criminal confession like we see in a very horizontal way, but real confession Is admitting how this is a departure from God's will for my life and when we'll get on the same page with God then God will come in and move powerfully in that situation so prayer real faith recognizes the role of prayer and confession and community but here's something else I want us to note that through prayer we can carry the burdens of one another for what we do know and we trust God to handle the parts that we don't know I'm not asking us to stop caring for our brothers and sisters who might have real needs and difficulties in their life and say, well, I ain't going to carry this until you tell me you sin. What's going on underneath the surface? We're not asking you to do that. I'm saying that, that real faith just knows that there's only so much weight I can carry. And I will not try to become a substitute savior for this person. I need to labor hard to get their name and their situation and them before Christ. And I might even have to get creative and pull back a couple of roof panels. And so, through prayer, we can carry the burdens of one another for what we do know. But we must be in a constant mode of trust that God will handle the segments or the portions that we don't know. Let's take a look at verses 17 through 19. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you know anything about the story of Elijah, here's what I want you to know, and I'll unpack it for you in just a moment. But real faith allows regular people to play really effective prayers. Real faith allows regular people to play, pray really effective prayers. Why do we need to know that? James thought it was necessary that we understand that, that, that this, this incredible prayer moment, this incredible demonstration of God's power that we're about to see uh, Elijah participate in, he was a regular guy, a really regular guy. He had a nature like ours. James wants us to know that he isn't just a faith hero like the writer of the book of Hebrews. He wants us to know that Elijah is a regular guy. Right? As a matter of fact, if you go to the scenario that, that James is most likely pointing to, not most likely, he is exactly pointing to a scenario where uh, Elijah prayed, as the scripture says, but immediately after that prayer was over and his encounter with Jezebel, he ran in fear. So we know that, that, that Elijah is a man who has fallen just like us. He's a sinner. But he's also a person who is fearful at times, just like us. We also know that Elijah felt inadequate at times, just like us. And so your personal feelings about yourself has no effect on prayer because it's not you who's doing the work. Regular, everyday people can have really effective prayer lives, not because you got some spiritual turbo boost, because you got all these great gifts, but because uh, you are trusting in the one who really does have the power. What makes prayer effective is my desiring, excuse me, is that when my desires become reflective of God's ultimate objective. I'm going to say that again. It's not going to be on the screen. What makes prayer really effective is when my heart's desires become fully reflective of God's ultimate objective. Let me say that in a less fancy way. Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven follow the bouncing ball right the idea of prayer the way jesus taught it is that what is happening on earth would be fully reflective of what has already been said in heaven that is that is the laser sharp prayer life coming from right from matthew chapter 6 Right. If you want to pray a real prayer, it isn't just repeating Matthew 6, but it's understanding the essence of Matthew chapter 6. Lord, my job as a person who prays deeply, who trusts you deeply and prays frequently, my job is not to try to be some kind of ecclesiastical magician where my faith is on showcase and people see things happening per my hands, but is how do I become a conduit where the things that you've already said in heaven become manifest on earth? How do we know that? Do you know, do you remember what Elijah did? What Elijah did, per this, the, the, Elijah's life, one, one of the, the, the high moments in his life was that when he went toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal, and through him, God showed himself to be king, himself to be creator, himself to be ruler, as he, as he took, as he swallowed up this sacrifice and offering that Elijah made before him, and the other God, the other prophets prayed out to Baal, and then their God didn't do anything. God is always about the business of establishing a flag in the ground that says, "This is mine; these are mine," and Jesus is my King. And when we pray prayers that look to make Jesus the prime celebrity, God is interested in the conversation because we are we are working from a position of how do I make life on Earth look like what heaven has already said? That's the real work in prayer is not trying to negotiate with God to get him to bring about the design and the desire that we've asked for, but it's, Lord, constantly work on what's happening in me so that I want what you want, and so that we see you as king, and we see your kingdom advance in the earth. And so, real faith allows regular people to play really effective prayers, and God has done this. He has designed prayer in a way that we must depend on him and he not depend on us. He has designed prayer in such a way that we must fully depend on him and he is not dependent upon us. In other words, if you follow kind of the magician model, it seems as if prayer is about or saying something to the great unknown is about unlocking the the treasure trove of what you want by having the perfect words. But the reality is having the perfect words means nothing to God if you don't have a heart that wants to see his son as king. Does that make sense? So again, for those of us who labor greatly to be able to stand up and pray beautifully, that ain't the objective. As a matter of fact, Jesus told us, don't be like the people who are given too many words in your prayers. Go in your closet, pray to God privately, and he'll reward you openly. So the real essence of prayer is how do I get my heart transformed to want what God wants? Well, guess what? I have no clue what God wants if I ain't swimming in this word and constantly having conversation with him on a a scheduled and non-scheduled basis. Because if I trust him deeply, I'll talk to him when? Frequently. Man, I blew that point. Only two people remembered that. <laughs> Try to make this stuff somewhat rhymey. <laughs> if I trust God deeply, I'll talk to him. Yes. Um, Couple of days ago, the kids remember this. You can verify this story with them, just in case you think this is hyperbole. Uh, but I promise that all these stories are true. Um, Jalen thinks I'm probably the weirdest child and/or parent uh, with all these stories that come out. But anyway, so the kids and I were at a doctor's appointment. Um, when was that? Two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, yeah, we had a doctor's appointment. And so uh, this is the first time that I've been to the doctor with them since they've been this big. I mean, they drove themselves. You know, I just met them over there because, you know, legally I gotta be in the room or whatever. So it's fun for me. You know, I don't have to pick anybody up and put them on this little thing where they get measured. I just watch them do it. Yeah, measure the big one. No, do this other one. You know, I'm just pointing, right? Calling shots, you know, whatever. They need their own insurance, don't they? Yeah, you know. You know how much have they been eating, you know? So, so, so it was cool. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> we, uh, so we take them to the doctor. It's their routine, physical, and this kind of thing. And I got a really a good kick out of this one moment in their checkups. Um, they had to do the, the weight and the height thing to make sure that they're, you know, those lines, you know, on schedule, right? Um, but then uh, they wanted to do a hearing test. And uh, so they put on these little headsets and the nurse goes over and she plays a series of sounds, boop, beep, beep. Raise your hand if you can hear that. And I was like, oh, that's nice. And I said, ma'am, I said, I'm getting ready to radically change your career and your job. She says, what are you talking about? I said, let me tell you how you really test the hearing of teens. I said, you don't play a series of sounds and ask them if they heard you. What you do is you get a series of pre-recorded se- uh, sentences like this where's the $20 bill that I gave you last week? <laughs> and then you can have the two, and then you can have two-fold verification. Did you hear that? Yes, and then what is the answer? That's how you test hearing. Or like, why, I said, why you got, you know, um, who took the laundry basket out of my closet and rather than folding the clothes and placing them, you just dumped it in the middle of my bed? Who did that? Right, that's the hearing test. Did you hear that sentence? Now give us the answer. That's how you test hearing. Because what we're we we don't just need to know that they heard sounds. We need to know whether or not they understood what was said. That's real hearing, right? I mean, how frustrating is it to be talking to someone and have them constantly going, huh, and not responsive? You cease to communicate because you don't think anybody's listening. Well, listen to me, brothers and sisters. We have a God that's not just hearing sounds. But when it comes to the life of prayer, he hears the words. He understands the sentences. He is a compassionate and a loving God, and he knows even what we're trying to say when we can't say it well. We have a God who is paying attention. We have a God who is hearing, and the reason that we know we have a God who has heard us is because the Bible tells us in the gospel, when we look at Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, what you are seeing is a God who is saying, I have seen your pain, I have heard your cries, and I have understood your sorrows, and I am come down to address them, and when I get done addressing them, I will bring you up and deliver them out of them. That is the ultimate answer to prayer is a God who understands our needs before we even articulate them and starts to create a solution before we mention the problem. That's the kind of God I want to pray to. And so, for the person here today who might not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, I understand that faith and prayer are regular conversation pieces in secular culture. Everybody is praying. But what could be more frustrating than just to be praying and it be like throwing coins in a famous fountain? It felt good, it looked good, it was picture worthy, but it meant nothing because no one's on the other end. I need to know that there is a God who is paying attention and not just hearing sounds. What about you? I want to pray. I want to pray to someone who is so attentive to my needs that he physically and actually came down to not only look in on my issues, but to also wear my shoes. I need a God who's not just committed to listening and hearing and looking and coming to check on me, but then is committed to fix what's wrong with me. The first and foremost and ultimate prayer that every single one of us ought to want answered is God, save me. God, come get me. God, make me your child. I want to have a relationship with you that qualifies me to talk to you and you're not giving me the stiff arm. You're not just hearing sounds in heaven, but you're hearing my sentences and you understand my need. The first and foremost and most ultimate and awesome prayer that we should ever want to pray is a pray that the Lord would come and to save us. And then after that, because we never grow beyond the need for the gospel, is always ask ourselves in the prayers that I'm praying, Lord, how do these prayers continue to tag on to the fact that you hear me, you see me, you've worn my my, my grease, and you are so attentive to my needs? When I pray, do I need to always go back to the cross? Maybe not, but it should always, the breadcrumbs of my prayer should always be leading me to the cross. There is something about the kingship of Christ and the work that he has done that should be laced and riddled in every single prayer. Because that's what God is doing. He is constantly emphasizing the kingship of his son, and that's why he wants to answer prayer. The answered prayers and the miracles and these impossible things that happen in the scripture, they either went before the Lord Jesus and the miracles were never the point. They were just the exclamation point on the messages that he preached, so that people would step back and say, who is the son of man? Who is this Christ? So the great and awesome answers to prayer was always about pointing our hearts back to the Lord Jesus. And so if I'm praying something before the Lord and don't feel like I'm getting traction, do not despair. Your God is compassionate and he hears you if you are his. But keep praying until something changes, either you or the situation. But don't stop praying. Because you know that the Lord is just trying to use you in every prayer. God wants to use you to thread the needle and knit closer the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. That is his goal. That is his agenda. How do I make the two look identical per this situation? And so, I say this. We have a God who has heard us. We have a God who not only does hear us, but he wants to hear from us. My very practical ask of you is that if you're living a life of deep faith, that you should also be living a life of deep prayer. And if you're living a life where you have starting to give up on the efficacy of prayer, you start to take things in your own hand, don't do it. Get back to a place of prayer. Trust God deeply and talk to him frequently. And don't let uh, uh, the, the clock dominate and dictate who, when, why, and you pray. Don't treat God like a meeting with uh, business partners where it's got to be in some specially scheduled, carved out time only. This is a relationship, not a business arrangement. And so I'm urging you and begging you, as often as you think about praying, do it, until prayer no longer comes about thinking first, but it just becomes about praying. Like, have no fear to talk to God often. He wants to hear from you more than you know. As a matter of fact, he wants to hear from you so much that he has committed to coming back to get you per his return so that your conversations are constant, uninterrupted, and without distance. That is the end game of God is to get you with him so the conversations are without breach and without interruption. So why not participate in that same goal and grand scheme of God while you're here on earth? If you trust him deeply, talk to him frequently. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you again, begging and asking that you would make, Lord God, if it's not our if it's not our reality, that it would become our request, that our hearts, Lord God, would be fully towards you. We ask that you would take the material from today's message, mere words on a page, but Lord God, infused with life that your spirit gives. And you will catch us where we are. And you will cause us to become a people of constant prayer and a church that has a culture of constant communication and prayer. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.